everybody. Let's do this. Why don't you turn to Psalm 87 with me, if you would. Tonight, I'd like us to take a look at this great little song. And I would like us to do something a little bit different tonight. Uh, Typically, we teach out of the New King James Version of the Bible, but I'd like us to go through this text using the New Living Translation tonight. As I came across the psalm in my own personal reading, I was doing so in the NLT, and it just really ministered to me, jumped out at me, encouraged me. I was refreshed, felt excited, and just wanted to take a look at it with you here tonight. And uh, the rendering in the NLT, a little bit different, helped me understand the lyrics and the images very clearly and vividly. And as just a, a little bit of an aside here... Of course, the Bible is not written in English, right? Uh, We all know that. Uh, Whatever version we use is the work of teams of scholars and linguists over many years who take those ancient languages and they convey the message into terms we can understand today, right? And when they do that, they'll utilize different styles of translation. When you get into uh, this topic, you'll find that there are two generally, uh, the, the two popular types of translation Theories or styles of translation are called either formal equivalence or dynamic equivalence. And every translation uh, uses both uh, of those styles, formal and dynamic. And uh, they'll either use, they'll rely on one or this one style or the other a little bit more. And so it can be really helpful to read God's Word in a couple of translations as you're going through your personal reading. And in fact, we'd recommend that. You should have a favorite go-to version, uh, but also take a look at some of the other major versions as you read. It can be particularly beneficial to read regularly out of one translation that is uh, leaning mostly on the formal equivalent side, like the New King James, the New American Standard, the ESV. And then also to read one of the versions that utilizes more of the dynamic equivalents Uh, like New Living or the NIV or Amplified Bible. And so tonight, if you're using an app, I'd invite you to switch over to the NLT. If you don't have an app, we're going to have the verses up on the screen as we go verse by verse. And I hope it's as refreshing to you as it was to me. Let me read our text for us, and then we'll take a slower look at each section. Here it is. It says, A song, a psalm of the descendants of Korah. On the holy mountain stands the city founded by the Lord. He loves the city of Jerusalem more than any other city in Israel. O city of God, what glorious things are said of you. I will count Egypt and Babylon among those who know me, also Philistia and Tyre and even distant Ethiopia. They have all become citizens of Jerusalem. Regarding Jerusalem, it will be said, everyone enjoys the rights of citizenship there, and the Most High will personally bless this city. When the Lord registers the nations, he will say, they have all become citizens of Jerusalem. The people will play flutes and sing, the source of my life springs from Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for tonight, and we do thank you for your word and how vibrant and living it is, that though it was written uh, over a period of a thousand years, thousands of years ago, it is still uh, as important and as true and as alive as it ever was. And that's because of your grace and because of the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that tonight, Lord, your Holy Spirit would attend our reading of your word and that you would speak heart to heart and person to person and help us, Lord, to be encouraged by the message that you have uh, prepared and preserved and delivered here in your word to us. 
We love you, Lord. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. These days, immigration is a huge topic of discussion and disagreement. It's a dominant feature of the news, not just here in the States, of course, but all over the world. Who can become a citizen? How should they do it? And, uh, you know, a lot has changed since the Ellis Island era. You know, between 1892 and 1954, 15 million people were processed through Ellis Island. Out of those millions, only about 80,000 people were ever turned away. That's just 2% of those who came through. They were turned away due to disease or defect of some kind. And about 80% of the people who came through finished the process in just a few hours. Pretty remarkable. They walked off the island with no paperwork, no ID, just a warm welcome and an expanse of opportunity before them. Psalm 87, as we read it, is a great song for spiritual immigrants. It's all about the city and the citizens of the Lord's kingdom. And while it has many parallels in the church today that we'll see, its complete fulfillment will not be realized until the Lord is ruling and reigning from His throne in Jerusalem during what we call the thousand-year kingdom on the earth, when all the nations of the world will gather together to worship and be blessed by Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate fulfillment of the things we're going to read here tonight. And in the meantime, we in the church recognize that we are already citizens of the Lord's kingdom, and we can therefore embody and enjoy great portions of what will be totally realized in the future. Our text breaks up nicely into three parts, separated by those interludes, or your version might say Salah there. In verses 1 through 3, we see the city. In verses 4 through 6, we see the citizens. In verse 7, we see a celebration. First, the city, beginning in verse 1 again. It says, On the holy mountain stands the city founded by the Lord. The song opens up here with a wide shot of Jerusalem, high up on a hill. Uh, Many classic films um, that have stood the test of time will have iconic wide shots in them. Even if you haven't seen the old Alfred Hitchcock movie, Psycho, which I don't recommend, you've probably at some point seen that iconic image of the creepy Bates home overlooking the motel. It looms there in a super creepy way. That's an image of horror, a wide shot that is meant to evoke emotion. Here we have an image of holiness. Jerusalem is there on the holy mountain. Derek Kidner writes this, its hills are hills of holiness because God is there. It's not the other way around. The Lord didn't choose Jerusalem because Jerusalem was holy. The Lord made it holy because uh, he selected it that way and affected it that way. Jerusalem is a city founded by God in holiness. It has been set apart and consecrated for specific purposes in his will. God has plans for that city. And those plans have not been canceled. They have not been transferred to anywhere or anyone else. You know, the church has not replaced Israel. Uh, God's plan for Israel may be on hold right now during the church era, but God has not replaced Israel. He has not transferred the promises uh, that he made to David and to Israel concerning the land, concerning their future. He hasn't taken them away and given them to someone else. He has plans for the city, and that will, will be accomplished. It will be completed. They are well-laid plans. They are a long time coming. The idea of founding a city reminds us that God is a builder. He builds cities. He builds a body. He builds somebodies, right? God is at work not just on the global level accomplishing his will, but he's working down on the national level, on the community level, on the family level, on the individual level, working in your life. 
Our Lord's a, a busy God, busy working all over the planet, but not just generally, individually, and particularly in your life as you cooperate with Him. And here is the character and the motivation for that work. Verse 2, He loves the city of Jerusalem more than any other city in Israel. Love is what prompts the Lord's work. His love for you is so great that He sacrificed His only Son that you might have the opportunity to be reconciled to Him. Those of you who are parents, we can't even begin to entertain a choice like that, a decision like that. Uh, It's one of those things that your brain just rejects if you thought, okay, take one of your kids and and don't even trade them for people's lives, but trade them for the opportunity for people to be saved, right? God the Father gave His Son for all of those people who reject the Son and who reject salvation. The Lord said, yeah, I still gave so that you would have the opportunity. He's a Savior of all men, especially those who who believe. But that is the character of his love for you and his love uh, for the world. That is the character of his work. God's love is great. It's a great, intimate affection. And we saw that in our Faithful Saying series over the last number of weeks. We see it all over both the Old and the New Testaments. God's love is personal and affectionate. And so his work is personal and affectionate. Uh, It's not just personal, but it's particular. Uh, The Lord knows you. He knows your name. He called you by name. He formed you in your mother's womb. Uh, I was thinking about it this week and realizing that, you know, Jesus Christ is the great physician, not the great prescription, right? A prescription, an antibiotic, it works the same. Just give it to whoever. It's a general thing. The pill, you know, the amoxicillin you're taking or the penicillin you're taking doesn't know who you are or what you're doing, but your doctor knows who you are, right? They know you personally. They put their hands on you. They look at you face to face. Jesus Christ is the great physician. He's not just a generalized medicine where he thinks, well, yeah, I just my blood covers over mankind. Let me know when they take their medicine. No, he's the great physician who, who lifts up your head personally and does a particular work in your life and in the lives of all the people on the earth. He reaches out to each and every one of them. Now, perhaps you read verse 2 there. He loves the city of Jerusalem more than any other city in Israel. And maybe you're tempted to think, well, that sounds unfair or exclusive in some way. Well, we'll see in a moment just how inclusive God is. But it reminds us that God has personal, particular plans. And when it comes to Jerusalem, he does have more in store for her than he does for, say, Farmersville. Farmersville is not listed in the uh, eschatological books, in the prophetic books. Uh, Jerusalem is. And he does have more in store for her, a lot of things. He has a particular plan and a will that he is most definitely accomplishing. And when it comes to eschatology, the end of human history, much of God's will centers around the earthly city of Jerusalem because he's going to take back up the work that he promised to do with the nation of Israel. Verse 3, O city of God, what glorious things are said of you. Some of the great things said of Israel, or said of Jerusalem, rather, are found in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 2, we learn about how the kingdom will be established in Jerusalem. The nations will flow to the city to be taught by the Lord. In Isaiah 14, we see that it will be the place of refuge for the poor of his people. In Isaiah 4, we see that Jerusalem is a place of cleansing and shelter and glory, the site of God's tabernacling with man. These words in verse 3 are not only a great promise... 
They're also a great testimony to the incredible, powerful grace of God. Because Jerusalem as a city, well, it doesn't have such a great track record. You know, when the World Cup comes around or the Olympics are coming around, there's a lot of different cities that campaign, each making a case for why they are the most worthy, the best, the ones that should be selected to host the games, right? And when places like Qatar win, you know, the hosting job, there's often an uproar. So next time there's the World Cup, it's in Qatar. And there was a big backlash against that because everyone said, look at their corruption, look at their human rights violations, look at the slave trade, look at all of these things. Who allowed this? Who got paid off? Who would say it was okay to have this global, you know, this supposedly great global contest in a place like Qatar? They don't deserve to host the World Cup. That's the attitude. Uh, Well, Jerusalem would not win a human campaign for capital of the kingdom of God. It just wouldn't. She was the city that crucified the Messiah. That's a bad one. Oh, oh, I, I see here... I see here you crucified the king the first time he came. Okay, we're going to note that in the ledger. She's the one who killed the prophets. In Revelation, she's referred to as Sodom in Egypt because of her immorality. And yet, what do we see? That God is able to redeem and make right even a city like that because of his power, the power of his love, and the wonder of his grace. He's not able just to save the city from the scrap heap, but to transform it, make it glorious, make it the capital of his kingdom. That's the kind of work God does in a city and in a life. And what makes it truly glorious? Well, it's the place where God will mingle with his people face to face. In verses 4 through 7, the song now turns to look at the citizens of the city. Verse 4, I will count Egypt and Babylon among those who know me, also Philistia and Tyre, even distant Ethiopia. They have all become citizens of Jerusalem. Think for a moment about the magnificent scope of this verse. First of all, these cities can represent every direction on the compass. If you look at Jerusalem and then plot out these other cities, you see north, south, east, and west represented. Second, these cities represent those both far and near, distant Ethiopia, and then Tyre's pretty close, you know, a stone's throw on the map almost. Third, these locations represent some of the greatest enemies of God or the pinnacles of wickedness and sin. You're talking about Egypt, you're talking about Babylon, you're talking about, you know, Philistia. These are great enemies of God, great enemies of God's people, mockers of Yahweh, pagans who did disgusting, terrible, awful, horrible things. And yet, what do we see here? Look at the great scope of God's grace. Even still, God's saving power is enough to make people from these nations all citizens of Jerusalem, citizens of the kingdom. There is no one too far, no one too wrong, no one too bad to become a child of God. The Lord has a place for anyone from anywhere if they're willing to come through his gates. And when a person becomes a spiritual citizen, they receive much more than a green card, much more than just a passport. It actually means becoming a member of the king's family, brought into his very house. Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's what it means to become a citizen of God's kingdom. You're not just somebody who says, yeah, I have a little flag next to my name on my passport now. Or now I have a a right to throw a vote in if I feel like it. No, this king says, if you're a citizen of my kingdom, I make you 
one of my children. I bring you into my household. And even more than that, I've adopted you. I've given you a place in the household. I share a full share of my inheritance with you. I include you in the ruling and the reigning of my kingdom. It's a magnificent thing. How does this transaction take place? Well, the psalm points it out there in verse 4. Those who know the Lord become citizens. To know the Lord means to not only be aware of Him, but to be familiar with Him. That's the term there. To enter into an intimate, personal, real relationship with Jesus Christ the King. In shorter terms, to be born again. That's what the psalm is talking about. Verse 4 shows a wonderful snapshot of the millennium there as people from all over the globe stream into the Lord's city, not as tourists, but as members, as citizens. We see a parallel and a foreshadowing in the church on the day of Pentecost. On that day, thousands from cities and countries far and wide all over the known world, the Roman Empire, were suddenly like that, born into the church, unified together, made instantly into the house of God by the power of the Spirit. And like the citizens in Psalm 87, each were given a full-fledged membership in the church right at that moment. Verse 5, Regarding Jerusalem, it will be said, everyone enjoys the rights of citizenship there, and the Most High will personally bless this city. And no special interest groups in the millennium that get certain categories included, certain categories excluded. No cronyism in the kingdom. Everyone enjoys full membership in the city. And you know, that's not only going to be true of the millennium, that's the plan for the church as well. That, that's what the Lord instructs us as members of the church in as well in the New Testament. The Bible declares that all Christians are royal priests. All are called by God in unity. Now, we each have particular assignments, abilities, gifts, skills, opportunities, callings, particular things that the Lord says, here's what I want you to do, here's what I want you to do. We see that in the book of Acts. Paul, this is where you're going to go, not there. Peter, here's where you're going to go, not there. And we see the Lord being very specific and very particular about how he called his people. But all were given the same commission, the same Holy Spirit, the same full-fledged membership in the church. Every member of the church is to enjoy the same rights and access to the Lord. There's not one priest class and one amateur class. God does not show favoritism. He's broken down the walls that divide us in the church. Now... This ideal that we see in verse 5 is clearly not fully realized in the church today, right? I mean, that perfect glorified ideal, that just doesn't happen in the global church today. We've yet to be perfected and glorified. But we can look forward to the fullness of this promise in the kingdom, a kingdom of blessing, not a kingdom that we'll want to get out of, not a kingdom that we're frustrated with, you know, it seems like everybody wants to get out of California right now, at least people around here. Though you may be surprised to know it's not even in the top 10 states that people are leaving. I bet you didn't know that. I was looking it up today. It's not in the top 10 states people are staying in either, but it's not in the top 10 states that people are leaving. But oftentimes people are so dissatisfied with their state or their nation, they try to find a way to leave and find what they think is a better spot, right? It's interesting, if you look and if you do a Google search, like, where's the best places to live? They always list those, like, northwestern European countries, Norway and Belgium and Denmark and those sorts of things. But even places like Norway, which is always listed as one of the, quote, best places to live, 
it has this problem of people leaving. People don't seem to want to stay, even though they claim it's the best place to live. Last year, it was reported that many workers are leaving Norway, despite its reputation. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that you pay above 50% in taxes in Norway. I don't know. That's just me. But the Lord's kingdom, oh, man, that's not what it's going to be like. It's not going to be a good place to live in name only. No, uh, it is going to be a place not just of fairness and justice, but of rights and enjoyment and abundance and blessing as God uses his immeasurable power to minister directly to the people of the earth. There will be no such thing as a second-class citizen. That's the godly plan for the future, and it's also the plan for the church today. We are to operate with this kind of mindset, with this kind of unity, with this kind of love for one another, even now as we patiently await for the Lord's coming. A mindset of grace and love, love even for our enemies, right? In the New Testament, we're told by our Lord, hey, love your enemies and show kindness and goodness and compassion, even to those who do harm against you. Verse 6 says this, when the Lord registers the nations, he will say, they have all become citizens of Jerusalem. This reminds us of what we read in Hebrews chapter 12, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. In the psalm here, we see the Lord publicly numbering his people. He calls the roll aloud as if announcing the lineup of his team. And the immediate question is, of course, is your name on the list? Will he call your name there as he calls the roll of heaven? Are you a citizen of the kingdom? Are you on the manifest? We've already seen that there is space available for anyone, no matter how far, no matter how near, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how bad you've been. There's space for you. The way to be registered in the Lamb's book of life is to know God, to be in relationship with Him, that you come to Him for rescue and shelter. And the Bible says to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. If you will believe, you will not perish, but will be given the gift of everlasting life, citizenship in God's kingdom, not just forever, but right now. That's the promise of the Scripture. As we glimpse into the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, we know something sort of interesting here sort of a rabbit trail, but there seems to be some sort of national distinction even in the millennium and the eternal state. Now, before you bristle at that, you read about the nations in Revelation 20, 21, and 22 covering the millennium and the eternal state in what we would call heaven. And while the word there can be translated as peoples, it's clear that there will at least in eternity be three categories in the kingdom of heaven. There will at least be the Jews, the church, and the Gentiles, And they will always be kept distinct. There may be more groups. It's hard to tell. Commenting on this, the great Dr. John Walford wrote, It is an error to assume that national identity will be lost in eternity. Just as there will be individual identity, so also there will be racial identity. And individuals will inevitably carry throughout eternity an identification related to some extent to their place in the history of the world. Hence, Israelites will be Israelites throughout eternity. Gentiles will be Gentiles as well. So just sort of interesting to think about. Having thought about the glorious city and the many citizens, what is left but to sing a song of joyful celebration to the God who makes it all possible. Verse 7, the people will play flutes and sing, the source of my life springs from Jerusalem. You may not be able to play an instrument or carry a tune today, but uh, on the other side of eternity you will. You'll be able to then. 
And just as we're invited to enjoy many aspects of our citizenship right now in the church as we await Christ's return, God would have us right now be people who regularly offer full-throated praise like we see here in verse 7. We certainly don't have to wait for the millennium to be the kind of people who worship with excitement and exuberance. One of the things I love about midweek is to hear you guys sing. It's what the Lord wants to hear as well. Even tonight, we can acknowledge and celebrate the Lord's grace and His work and His generosity toward us. And I love that last line, the source of my life springs from Jerusalem. Not because the city is special, but because God's presence is there or will be there in the kingdom. God is our Savior. He is our sovereign. He is our supply. He is our source of life. And the song closes with the image of streams pouring out of human hearts, just like Jesus talked about in John 7, that his people would have rivers of living water flowing out of them. And that was not just for heaven. That is for as we walk with him here on the earth right now. Everlasting life isn't given the moment after we die. Everlasting life is given the moment you are converted to Jesus Christ. And those rivers of living water are meant to flow out of you every day on this earth as you walk with the Lord. And so as we anticipate the glorious future, God's kingdom on the earth and the eternal state, we should also examine the present. What's flowing out of my life? Is it unity? Is it thankfulness, anticipation, godliness, glory? Is our life singing Psalm 87 as we journey home to that heavenly city? We're looking forward like Abraham did, but we remember that as the church, we are the city on the hill right now, right? That's what the Lord said. And the church is to be defined by grace and unity and compassion and praise and preaching and proclamation and all of these things. That's the Christian life. That's who you are. That's who you became when you became a citizen of the kingdom. That is the life given to us as a gift from heaven. We who were once strangers and foreigners but have now been made citizens and members of the family of God. In 1929, my grandpa Gennaro sailed from Naples to Ellis Island with his mother and two siblings. They came to the harbor, passed the Statue of Liberty, through the gates into the Great Hall to be registered. Once finished, they settled in Connecticut, began a new life as Americans. Like many in his generation, as he grew older and had a family of his own, he wasn't interested in teaching his children the old language or the old ways. They were citizens of America now. And he wanted to live accordingly. He, even when we had our first son and said, Hey, Grandpa, we named him Gennaro after you, the old Italian name. Why did you do that? Was his response. Because he had this mindset, Hey, we're American now. And uh, he would even go by his new American name, Gene. He joined the U.S. Navy fighting in the Pacific during the Second World War. And while he most certainly was not an example of godliness, he does demonstrate what it means to take on new citizenship. At age nine, he was a son of Italy, and then one day, a few hours after walking through this line, he was an American, as far as he was concerned, living an American life. Now, we have a much, much better transaction, right? We've traded citizenship from the kingdom of death for the kingdom of life, from darkness to light. And so the invitation from Psalm 87 is that we would live as citizens today in imitation of our king, in anticipation of his coming, and in joyful praise for who he is and what he's done. Amen.